Hello and welcome to another conversation with the Canadian Psychological Association. My name is Eric. I'm the Communications Officer at the CPA. And joining me today is Dr. Lindsay McCunn. She is the Chair of the Environmental Psychology Section at the CPA. And environmental psychology is a whole lot more than just climate change and pollution and conservation. Uh, there's a whole lot more to it than that. We'll let uh, Dr. McCunn explain what that is. She is an architectural psychologist. Well, it's it's an environmental psychologist. As a, uh, a general rule, we're going to uh, understand how people relate to places. And there are some environmental psychologists that do this with built environments, and that's what I do. So I work a lot with hospitals and prisons and schools and offices um, and neighborhoods. And then there's the other side of environmental psych that looks more to do with, you know, uh, conservation psychology, pro-environmental behavior, pro-environmental attitudes, eco-consciousness, and so on. Um, and so my work, uh, a lot of it is very applied and um, within the consulting realm where I'll go into different settings and help people design uh, buildings and infrastructure with engineers and facilities managers and so on to make sure that the occupants are satisfied um, in terms of their well-being and their mental health um, and their physical health. So that's what I do. I work with architects to design buildings with occupants in mind. Okay, that makes perfect sense. And in this time, now that we're all confined to the architecture of our own homes, as far as our <laughs> offices go, uh, do you, are you uh, changing the practice a little bit? Are you telling anybody uh, how to set up their workspace at home for maximum mental health benefit? Yeah, I did an interview with uh, uh, Esquire magazine, uh, online a couple weeks ago they asked me these questions and there's a few things you can do there's um obviously give yourself a view of nature if you can we know uh you know we've known for many years that um that even just having a view of nature will make you feel better make you feel healthy and sort of stimulate your mood um, so if you can situate your work setting where you're able to sort of have that attention restoration, that cognitive restoration where you're looking up and looking out into nature rather than maybe looking at your phone or your pet or, you know, going to the fridge for food or whatever it is you can look out yeah. um, and get that hit of um, natural stimuli rather than maybe looking at a blank wall or uh, something else. Um, and also just having conversations with people in the home about territoriality we often overlook our need for personal space and our tolerances for personal space and territoriality. And so a lot of environmental psychology has a history of researching what our tolerances are based on our age or our personality and other demographic differences. Um, and so it's good to have a conversation about that with other people. Some people are really flexible and love um, a lot of interruption and social stimuli around them. Those people usually are the type of people we call screeners so they can go and work at coffee shops and starbucks and and be very you know adapted to listening to other people um, and mechanical sounds around them and traffic and other things and they work just fine mm -hmm. whereas other people you know really love to have a lot of quiet um, and isolation around them while they're working and concentrating and you can imagine now that the home is the realm of you know homeschooling and children and other you know partners working at their jobs and depending on that job type one partner could be on the phone a lot or on Skype a lot or Zoom, and another partner's working hard to think <laughs> or to, right. to do math or code or whatever they're doing. Um, and so you have to have these sort of atypical conversations with people in the home about what they need and where they want to work. Like, 
somebody might just take over the dining room one day, like my husband did <laughs> and say, okay, this is his workspace. And it's like, Oh, okay. That's your territory now. Like this is, this is where you're working and you're going to spread your stuff out. Um, that is actually to sort of, right. Like he's not going to hop around one day. It's on the couch. One day it's on the bed. One day it's on the dining room. It's actually no, always on the dining room table. And that's his spot. That's what uh, I did it's... today. I moved my whole home office today into our dining room and I can look <laughs> out from here and I can see, uh, the neighbors have put a kiddie pool out in their front yard, which I think is remarkably optimistic for this time in May, but it mm. is bringing me a little bit of joy and I feel like it's looking out on sort of a waterfront uh, in as much as I can get such a thing from my house. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's sort of nice to look up and see people <laughs> and, you know, you get that feeling of vibrancy just like you're sitting in an urban hub watching people eat lunch or meet for coffee or bump into each other. It's almost like something, something's better than nothing at this point. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And my wife is off work because she's a a hairstylist and she actually has uh, her whole shop is our ground floor in our house here. Right. So she's really looking for something to do. So what we've done is we've set up the garage and I'm hoping it gets warm enough in the next couple of days that I can work from the garage because then I can look out onto the street and I will see people walk by with their dogs and I'll have some sense that I'm interacting with humanity while I'm uh, working in the garage. And in the meantime, we've set up our TV and the Netflix and so on with the couch in the garage so we can kind of be outside all the time. I love it. I love that. Bring, yeah, bring your living room sort of half in, half out. Like, why not? Yeah. (laughs) That's so good. Well, I'm hoping it works out. And uh, how about you? How Your husband's taken over the dining room now. Where are you working? Uh, Well, I kind of, I've forced myself in there the last couple days on the other side because our dining room has benches instead of chairs. And so um, I've sort of, now I'm facing him so that I'm not on his zoom, like in the background or something. (laughs) Um, but I have a desk, we have a desk in our bedroom where it's sort of my zone. Um, but the kids have sort of also taken over that. I don't know. They just don't want to be alone upstairs in their rooms. They just want to be down with us all the time. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Which is great when we're helping them with homework and stuff. But at the same time, it's like, Oh, okay, I need to leave these things here. Um, please don't touch them. Well, that's impossible. Like, uh, so I've, I've carved different spots around, but I think I'm, I'm more capable of moving from space to space than he is. And so I feel like we're, you know, we've actually got along quite well. I think only maybe because I'm an environmental psychologist and I know that if you have these conversations uh, proactively, you can, um, respect your partner uh in a way that's um helpful to their their work environment not just their their other their other aspects and their personality i think that's yeah i'm sure everyone's going through a little bit of that right now and uh my wife my wife does like to uh critique what i wear on zoom calls though (laughs) or what i'm showing in the background of my Zoom calls. I realized yeah, a couple that's fun. Yeah. Because <laughs> I realized a few days ago that I was doing, you know, work Zoom calls and everybody would uh, you know, video chat and in the background I have 
a needlepoint that a friend of mine did that has a very offensive uh, phrase on it that was just <laughs> on the bookshelf and I never, it's been there for years now. I don't pay any attention to it and nobody said anything, but I, I was a little worried that that was in every Zoom shot. <laughs> well, I love this sort of idea that all of the, the our home pets are making appearances and doing, you know, it's, just becoming part of people's work lives. Like I was on a zoom with a, I was, it was on our department meeting and our, my cat started to basically try to kill itself on our, on my curtains behind my monitor. So I jumped up and like, you know, it was just a wild scene. Um, but then afterward, of course, everyone had got to meet the cat and it was so cute, except that it was extremely distracting. <laughs> right. So yeah. Yeah. How much thought do you put into what's in the background when you're on a Zoom call? Uh, I put in a lot of thought only because um, I can see it. So this is a, this is the weirdest thing with Zoom. I guess you could maybe customize it so that you don't see your own image. Um, but I am not good enough with Zoom to know how to do that, really, or, nor do I care, I suppose. So I, it's <laughs> a weird thing to sort of see yourself as you're speaking. And now... I, I, so I, and I criticize my environment and I'm very aesthetic. So I like to look at, like, I like to make sure that whatever's in the background is something I want to see as, you know, serene and productive. Um, and so I'm very careful where I place myself, but I think it is sort of this odd phenomenon that whenever we have conversations now, we see ourselves as well as the person. Um, and I think that's partly why it's so exhausting. I mean, I, I understand that, you know, there's probably a lot of neuroscience behind why, Zoom is so exhausting or other um, online video conferencing. Um, but I think part of it is because you are not only paying attention to the body language of the person you're talking to, but also keeping track of your own facial expression and body language and aesthetic um, at, during the whole conversation, which is, to me, really, really tough to do. I, I suppose that's true. And I, I definitely do not know how to do the thing where I don't see myself, uh, but I'm small and I'm in the bottom of the screen. So all I really know is whether I'm centered or not. And then sometimes I'll forget and I'll just get up and go and get a drink and then I'll come back and I'll realize, oh yeah, everyone can yeah. see me do that. That's, you know, it's not the same as a conference call anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it is nice to see everyone at least and uh, remember that you do have real flesh and blood co-workers who <laughs> we will one day see again. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. And so uh, really while we're doing all of this and while we're realizing that a lot of our jobs can be done remotely and that we don't necessarily have to uh, travel as much as we do and some of these things are uh, helping the environment in the short term, how sustainable do you think that might be in the long term? Uh, um, I think it depends um, on adaptation. I think it depends on how long we have to endure this. And it, it goes against, it doesn't go against everybody's way of life. Um, I think it goes against a lot of people's social sensibility. Um, but I know a lot of people are, depending on whether or not they're introverted or, uh, you know, their internal or external locus of control, how calm they are, whether or not they have pre-existing conditions in terms of anxiety. I think um, many people will sort of rush to um, go back to a sort of a heightened uh, hyper socialized life um, while other people and uh, won't and maybe in 
part of that decision could be um, to preserve some of the benefits and the, the gains that we've seen during this time uh, toward um, uh, sustainability or bettering climate change in, in a little bit of a, uh, in some minute ways. Um, and I know that, you know, air quality's increased or improved, I should say. And but it's hard because there's some aspects of sustainability during this time that have been um, sort of denied us. Like if you go to the grocery store, you have to use plastic bags, right? Right. Um, if you go to a coffee shop that's open, you can't use a reusable mug. So there's these these strange trade-offs that we're trying to make now to be sustainable almost means doing things that maybe some people weren't habitually doing before, like starting a garden and being self-sustaining with your food um, at home or reusing or repurposing the things you have at home because it's not so simple to go and buy something new as it used to be. So I think people's idea of sustainability will change. Um, it's already changing probably, but I think it'll, it'll move forward um, with maybe a little bit more empowerment after this is over. Well, that's one thing that I'm noticing, certainly here in my house, is that I have had a really hard time for decades trying to get my family to eat leftovers, and now they embrace leftovers. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, that's what we're having, of course. That's, you know, very little waste now. It's right. Everything gets used a second time in some way. Yeah, and I think, too, I mean, for us, it kind of, I mean, my husband hasn't been laid off, and, we're, you know, it's it's okay, but... I'm very, I'm more money conscious than I've ever been. And just because of the fear or the risk of, um, and I have, a, you know, I'm tenured, but I, d I just thought, okay, I'm going to save energy, not necessarily maybe for the planet, although it, it is in the back of my mind, but I'm, I'm doing things that will save me money um, because I'm sort of in this mental position to want to conserve my resources. And so maybe that is something that will stick with us. Um, after this very severe, significant threat to our well-being or to our livelihood or quality of life, we've got this idea that will stay on that we should maybe be resourceful and find ways to help ourselves and maybe be a little bit more uh, self-sustaining. Well, my project this weekend uh, with my wife, who's a hairstylist, is to make our own shampoo. Not that <laughs> we super need to, it's not scarce, but it's just something to do as a family, and we're going to see if we can make that happen. So fingers crossed that nice. that uh, is a new level of sustainability for us. That, you know, that and I'm hoping to start the, start the garden indoors so that by yeah. May 2-4 weekend we can plant that. And it's Perfect. all vegetables this year, which I've been lobbying for for years. I always said nice. we didn't need flowers. We don't need a lawn. We just need vegetables everywhere. And I'm finally getting my, my dream <laughs> to have a farm in my very small backyard. <laughs> I think there's been an uptick of people getting chickens. Have you noticed this? I, a lot of people I see uh, online are, are opting to get their own chicken. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's to get, you know, keep their egg, get eggs and not have to go to the store. I don't know, <laughs> but it mm -hmm. seems to be popular. <laughs> yeah. That actually sounds like an amazing idea. I know that I would be not allowed to do that with the bylaws in my neighborhood here. They're very strict, but yeah. uh, I do know several neighbors, just one suburb over, are starting to raise quails. Oh. And they have a quail league, I guess. You see them on Facebook discussing the, you know, raising of quails. And I wow. don't know if that's for the eggs or for the Could quail be. itself, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I hope the eggs. <laughs> yeah, the qu well, the eggs, I guess, you eat them, but they're very small, and they have yeah. a strange taste. I don't like them, but 
No, me neither. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So now you have spent so much time creating incredible office spaces for people to come in to feel psychologically grounded while they're in the office. And now all those beautiful spaces are going unused. Does Mm -hmm. that make you a little sad? Uh, yeah, I think, I think, uh, it makes me sad, but it also makes me curious, um, because I wonder how we can innovate. There's a a team I work with at the university of Washington in Seattle. We do a lot of work with offices and they're engineers, right? They're architectural civil engineers. And so they're, we're always sort of tinkering with, um, air quality and HVAC systems and uh, acoustics and, uh, thermal comfort and things. Um, And so now we're applying for a National Science Foundation grant to see, you know, what's the environmental trust or sense of organizational commitment or sense of safety when people come back to work. And of course, things are sort of open plan, everybody coughs and uh (laughs) uh-oh, you know, what, what, is everyone going to get sick? So I think there's going to be this shift in people's mentality going to work in certain environments, not all environments. But offices that maybe don't have, you know, we've gone from having these big, tall cubes and these cubicle walls to having them lower, you know, to have more socialization at work. But now all of a sudden that presents some kind of risk in, in some, for some people who are very worried and other people maybe are not so worried. So now is the time to study whether or not the office designs, these open plan office designs that we thought were so innovative with respect to socialization at work and collaboration um, and teamwork, Will they present a hazard in terms of people's sense of risk or sense of threat at work? And so we're going to we're applying to get some money to study this. I think we'll do it anyway, even if we don't get the grant. But um, it'll be interesting because I know that there's a lot of facilities managers out there that want to put uh, sanitation stations in with a lot of hand sanitizer places to, um, you know, extra places to wash your hands, a lot of messaging around the office. And you require some environmental psych with that, I think, because you you, you run the risk of making people feel uncomfortable or scared at work um, with all this extra direction about how they should behave at work. And some people will respond against that. They'll, they'll have reactants, right? They don't want to do that. They feel that they're being told what to do or being watched by management and other things. It's, it's not always a good idea. There's a balance. And it's the same with climate change messaging, too. Um, Oops, you, sorry, you either can it's okay. You can go That's overboard. my little alarm system there. Oh, <laughs> so cute! My cat does not do that. <laughs> oh, my dogs need to be on at least once in every phone call that I make in every Zoom call. At least they'll make their presence known vocally. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, hi, puppy. <laughs> Oh, it's so cute. Yeah. So I think it's the same with the climate change messaging too. What we've learned is, you know, you have to make it in a, you have to say these things in a positive way, in an encouraging way to afford compliance. You, otherwise you're going to get the opposite and you're going to get non-compliance, right? So the messaging around what public health should look like within different types of office space has to be carefully considered from a psychological standpoint. Otherwise you're going to get people feeling you know, learned helplessness and, and fear and depression about what they can and can't do at work um, and feeling scared about their um, their health or their risk of getting sick with airborne illness, or they're going to really buy in and act in a way that's safe for everyone. And that's basically up to the organization uh, itself and the facilities managers and the, and, the, and the owners and the stakeholders that are responsible for that messaging. So the more that environmental psych gets out there as a, as a tool for people to use and sort of look at our body of literature that's very interdisciplinary, very applied, and use it to their advantage and capitalize on what we've already said about these situations. We can use it for the sake of people coming 
back into a post-COVID situation at work or in different infrastructure, different buildings uh, in cities, or with respect to climate change too, learning how people respond and comply with messaging that is of different degrees of severity, I guess. Right. And would you say that there's a blueprint somewhere for that? Uh, The type of messaging you need, the type of environment you need to create, how tall your sneeze guards should be between cubicles, that sort of thing? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there's a few there's a few studies on that. But really, it hasn't. I would say that more needs to be done to sort of solidify what is best depending on the type of population you've got. So there's different types. We find in this industrial organizational psych as well, you know, depending on the type of work you do, a lot of people will accept different designs for different, for different reasons. Like if you have a, a whole floor of people working in IT and they're really interested in working with, you know, five screens in front of them and their headphones on and they're not really paying attention to other people and they just come into work and they do what they're supposed to do and then they go other office cultures are going to be, you know, responding differently to people saying like, okay, only five people in the kitchen right now. You know, that could be really different um, and and hard to understand for certain offices and certain workplaces. Right. So, um, yeah, I don't think that there's a, a true blueprint for it yet, but I imagine that it's going to be a lot of case studies uh, and a lot of evaluations going on um, for different types of environments and different types of organizations. I guess we've never really done this before on this scale. Yeah. It's certainly uh, brand new for everybody, right? Yeah. yeah. Although I was not at the office uh, at the CPA for very long before all this happened. Uh, so I was still feeling my way out in the building. And it was, we all have very closed off offices, right? So everybody's got yeah. their own office. And uh, we don't see each other unless we actually physically leave the office. But I was the one who always wanted to leave my office and go have a conversation with somebody down the hall. Yeah, right? yeah. And I would just sort of, you know, burst into offices. And it turned out after a while that uh, I learned who is okay with that and who isn't, right? Who would prefer an email, who would prefer a phone call, and who is okay with me just walking in the door of the office and starting to talk, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I imagine we're going to have to relearn all of that again down the road when we uh, reopen and maybe people will now react differently to things like that. Yeah, I think people are learning a lot about themselves and maybe people who thought they were introverted. Like, I mean, I always sort of almost pride myself at thinking I was introverted. And then through this, I learned, um, actually, no, I need more. I need more um, feedback and social stimuli than I than I realized. Um, the other thing that just occurred to me as we were talking is that with this this idea that we're going to have to revise uh, maybe some of the ways in which we understand design post COVID, um, in terms of yeah cubicle height and HVAC systems and uh, the you know the size of particulate in the air that we, our filtration systems allow. Um, I wonder if that's also a chance while we're we're visiting those things and understanding them in more of a, a public health perspective, if we can take that opportunity to also just make them more efficient since we're in there already assessing uh, whether or not they're working um, or working well, it could be that uh, this is an opportunity for us to, to revisit or to investigate a lot of elements that go into design, not only for infectious uh, disease prevention, but also for sustainability um, and efficiency. I think that's an excellent idea, and that would be a wonderful outcome if it were able to uh, to happen. I mean, you got to get a whole new HVAC system. You may as well get the most environmentally friendly one that filters out yeah. the most particulate at the same time, right? Yeah, and I think, too, the outcome of that, that sort of 
it's not unspoken unless you're measuring it, but it, it, it may be that you foster trust from employees by doing that, by making them see and understand that, hey, you know, we're looking into this. We're going to make your office very safe for you and also very safe for the planet or proactive um, and eco-conscious for the, for, the, for the state of the world with respect to climate change. And all of a sudden, by doing that, organizations communicate to their employees that they care. And not only do they care about the employees, but they care about the, the planet. And so it's sort of a double whammy in that you're uh, hopefully going to have some outcome that's a value alignment between employees working for that organization that's making those changes or making those investigations happen to check how safe things are. And then this sort of pro-social, satisfying, satisfactory outcome that happens um, when you feel the organization cares about you um, and cares about the things that you care about with respect to values. Well, here, here's my dream for how all of that will go. I hope that every building will, you know, install a system that is vastly more environmentally friendly, that's progressive, that's uh, more efficient, but that also they will have a communal garden and greenhouse on the roof of every building. What do you think? Wouldn't that fantastic? It's just so neat. The um, the outcome of this that I've noticed the most is how much people are realizing that they that that nature is critical to their well being. Mm-hmm. And if it if it went un, unnoticed prior, I think now most people are really understanding within themselves, and that's where it matters on that individual level. To make change happen at a global level, you need individuals to realize what matters to them, what they love, and what they're bonded to. And I think, uh, you know, when when this the social isolation restrictions occurred, people were, you know, of course they're worried about not being able to go out and see their friends. That's the social facet, but the other place facet, the physical facet of losing the habitual um, behaviors that you go through in the physicality of your, you know, your local environment. That's a very scary feeling too. And for me and for a lot of others, the risk of losing access to urban parks, green space, provincial parks, um, larger natural attributes was very worrisome. And because we know as environmental psychologists, all of this literature, that all of this science that says that access and exposure to nature is extremely good for our well-being, our moods, our ability to understand problems, our ability to make decisions well, to feel reasonable, to restore ourselves cognitively. That that science is really coming to the fore now um, that we've had a chance to realize what happens to our mood and our, uh, our state of mind when that access to, to nature is threatened. And so I think now more than ever, cities in particular that have green space, I think what what I hope will happen is that they will almost ramp up their accessibility to those places and their communication to the public to say, hey, this is a place you should use and and go to if you're stressed. This is a good thing for you to go here and be with other people. And if there's physical distancing measures still in place for many months to come, that's something that can be communicated too. But I think the, um, the important part is to communicate to the public that these places are good for you and not only good for you physically in terms of exercise, but also good for you mentally. And I, I don't think that will come to surprise to anybody because I think it's something we intrinsically feel now more than ever. I think so. I, it occurs to me, I've only ever worked uh, at our offices downtown in the winter time. So I would take the train in, mm-hmm. in the winter and uh, I, I walk through the concrete downtown very little green space, right, to get to the office. 
but I do recognize that every morning on the way in, I would look over to where Confederation Park is and think, oh, when the summer comes, I can have lunch in the park. I can go sit in one of those benches and that sort of thing. And uh, now I'm super looking forward to taking the train one st- stop further and walking just a bit further so I have to walk through the park to get mm-hmm. to the office <laughs> instead of, uh, you know, through the downtown concrete monstrosities that uh, populate Ottawa. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's that choice that you make to to insert that in your day. And it's almost something that, yeah, you wouldn't have done it otherwise. And so I think there can be some positive aspects to the situation in terms of self-reflection and learning about what you really look forward to and what matters to you. What, what are the meanings behind uh, certain facets of your life and your, the physicality of your life that you didn't notice before. And it, it reminds me of some of the things that I study um, in my line of work, which is this sort of psychological construct of sense of place. And of course it's, it's not, I didn't explore it or uh, initially bring it up or make it up. This is other people's works, specifically some geographers that thought about it, but I use it a lot in my research that says that you've got this sort of place attachment element, which is the, the emotional bond you have to places mixed in with place identity. So this idea that a place makes you, you, or somehow helps you to understand who you are. And then also the idea of place dependence, which is that behavioral component, that idea that you are compatible, um, behaviorally compatible with a, with a physical setting. And so I think many people, whether they realize it or not, are starting to understand that their sense of place is a bit different without access to some of the, the physical environments that they've had available to them in regular life. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> they clearly want to go and visit a physical environment of their own. Yeah, they they, uh, they sound They like miss that. trees. Yeah. <laughs> Take yeah, me to the dog so, park. Oh my god, that's so cute. Yeah, so I just I think people are probably maybe scrutinizing what matters to them in terms of the places that they miss. Uh, in terms of place attachment or or places that they find that they don't really feel themselves without that place um, that they can't get to right now or how much they really miss going about their daily habits in a, in a place. And, and I think about it too. And today I actually fulfilled something that I've been missing very much because a local coffee shop has recently reopened in a takeout sort of counter fashion where they, um, were able to staff up enough um, and open the coffee shop again to sort of pass through one order at a time through their back door. And the coffee shop is literally a block from me. And I really enjoyed walking that distance um, and looking at all the houses on the way and the gardens and people's lawns and then getting my coffee and walking back home. And now I feel like I can do that again, which is extremely satisfying to me. So it, it wasn't just the coffee. It's not a socialization aspect. It's the physicality of that that I missed so much. Yeah, I imagine. Well, I hope that when this is all over, we all get to go to the places that we miss and we realize that we miss them and that uh, everybody's office is that much more sustainable with a giant communal garden on top and vegetables for everyone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Dr. McCunn, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. And everybody out there, stay safe and be well.